Hello, I'm Ross Braun, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. It's Tom Clarkson here with the first of two very special episodes of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. Now, January the 3rd is Michael Schumacher's 50th birthday. That makes him the same age as Will Smith, Hugh Jackman, Kylie Minogue and Daniel Craig. But only Michael can claim to be the most successful driver in the history of Formula One. His astonishing seven world titles and 91 victories are still some way clear of Lewis Hamilton in second place. Michael, of course, retired from F1 for a second time in 2012, but very sadly we haven't heard from him since his skiing accident in December 2013, and it goes without saying that he remains in the hearts and minds of F1 fans all over the world, and he's very much in the thoughts of my guest today, Ross Braun. Ross played a central role in all of Michael's world title successes and all but three of his race wins. He was technical director at Benetton and then Ferrari, and he even lured Michael out of retirement in 2010 when Mercedes returned to F1 as a works entity. Few people know Michael better than Ross, so who better to reflect on this prodigious talent? Please sit back and enjoy some of his reflections on a very special drive. Well, Ross, welcome to Beyond the Grid. Great to have you on the show. Um, we're talking all things Michael Schumacher. It's his 50th birthday. So when did you first meet Michael and what impression did he make on you? Um, I met Michael in sports car racing in the mid-80s, late, late, last third of the 80s. Um, it would have been 88 or 89, I guess. And... Um, he maybe even 90 actually but he was driving for the mercedes sports car team they had three drivers i think it was michael frenson and venlinger um which all obviously went on to have full one careers but in the sports cars michael stood out massively and um sports cars were about going quick but also driving to fuel driving yeah semi-economy run during the race but he was uh, he was doing lap times on less fuel than you know, than the others, beating them by a mile. And the year we had the uh, championship winning Jaguar, the only op- opposition we truly had, quite frankly, was was Michael in the Mercedes uh, because the other drivers weren't uh, were anywhere near as good. And uh, you know we were saved a little bit by the fact that the uh, the Mercedes management gave each of their drivers an equal stint in the car. So Michael would go out and give us all sorts of grief, and then the other two would would give us some comfort. Um, So that's where I first met him. And clearly incredibly quick. And what impressed me was his ability to do the fuel mileage with lap time. And very competitive in those days. He... uh, he had a fairly major altercation with uh, Derek Warwick, where I had to help stand between the two before Derek whacked him. Um, and uh, Michael, something happened in qualifying, and both cars came in the pits with big marks down the side, and Derek tore out of the car and chased Michael up the pit lane with myself and some Mercedes mechanics trying to keep up and stop, uh, stop Derek hitting him. So was it obvious to you, even then in sports cars, that he had a Formula One future and, and a successful one at that? Um, you don't know when you make that transition, but clearly he was, he was exceptional in sports cars. Um, so it was obvious to Tom Walkershaw and myself how good he was. And when the, when the talk came of him going into Formula One, Tom and I were already then engaged at Benetton. And... Um, we were desperate to get him in the car because we knew how good he was. You were desperate to get him in the car. Are we talking after Belgium when he made his debut with Eddie Jordan or were you in contact with him about Formula One prior to that? Um, prior to that, I think uh, as soon as we became aware, I mean, the problem was we had we had two drivers in the car and you know, it wasn't, uh, Jordan had a spare seat. So, and we were trying to persuade Flavio that we... We should be fairly um, drastic in the change. He wasn't convinced because he knew nothing about Michael Schumacher. 
But of course, when Michael appeared in Spa and put in the performance he did, he was convinced. So um, I think, uh, you know, the the Flavio discovering Michael Schumacher story is a little bit exaggerated. Uh, <laughs> Tom and I were desperate to get him in the car. And Flavio was convinced once he saw him at Spa. So then ensued a sort of fairly um, testy battle to pull him out of the Jordan and stick him in the Benetton. Did he personally get involved in those negotiations or was he just the pawn in the middle that you were all fighting over? Um, I don't think you'd ever describe Michael as a pawn. Uh, I certainly wouldn't. Um, yeah, he, he, he's, but even back then, actually, he was... Oh, he's, he's, a, you know, he, he's sharp and uh, he, um, <clears throat> he would have known everything was going on. But Willy Weber was the, was the key guy on Michael's side. But in fact, Mercedes were, were helping fund this Formula One uh, introduction. So um, I remember some of the Mercedes guys were, uh, were involved in, in the discussions. But quite frankly, that was something Tom, Tom and Flavio did. I watched as a, you know, uh, entertained from a distance. I was more concerned, or only concerned really, with the engineering of the car. Now, what was he like as a person back then? Ross, was he was he very confident immediately or was there a sort of humbleness to him at that point or just what did you find when he first came to Benetton and the Italian Grand Prix of 1991 um he was pretty well balanced I must say you know he had enough confidence to make you feel he could do the job but not not overconfident very um very inquisitive very uh keen to learn and I remember even then, you know, he devoted himself to it and committed the time and just just came across immediately as a very professional um, driver. Not an awful lot of experience because his experience had been quite narrow in what he'd done. So, um, you know, there was a lot of learning to do, but he had a great attitude. I think one of the things I'd say about Michael from out, throughout his career is that people who work with him never had a bad word to say about him. You know, within the teams he worked in, he always created a great impression and great loyalty. And it was immediately obvious back then. The following year, we had a delicate situation because uh, Martin Brundle was his partner. And Martin was someone who was very close to Tom. And there was a little bit of um, minor needle in the team, but nothing uh, nothing too serious. Um, so that had to be sort of managed but and and Michael handled himself pretty well. So, yeah, he was. I'm trying to remember how old he would have been at that stage. That would have been 91. So, uh, we ought to be able to work this out. But I'm getting too old. Uh, he would have been in Six. what is? He would have been 23. Yeah. So okay. young. I'll take your word for it. Well, no, so he was. <laughs> so he was born in 68 because we're celebrating his. Yeah. Well, it, it was 25 then. 20. No, 23. 91, yeah. he was 23. Yeah. yeah. So, What about Nelson Piquet? Because that first race for you guys at Benetton, you know, he had a three-time world champion alongside him and beat him immediately. Can you remember how they rubbed along together? Uh, I didn't really. I mean, Nelson made a big fuss about um, dropping of... Um, I'm trying to remember who the Benetton driver was. At, uh, Roberto Moreno. Moreno, yes. Moreno got, uh, got dropped and... Nelson made a big fuss about that and sort of was creating a big sideshow about uh, um, Moreno being unceremoniously dropped. Um, like all drivers of Nelson's sort of experience, he had Moreno in the place he wanted him and then suddenly he had this young kid who wasn't interested in what Nelson wanted. So uh, so I think it, yeah, and, and Nelson left. I think the writing was on the wall and um, Nelson knew which way the team was going to be going. So, you know, you don't, it's a cruel world in that, in that environment. You don't choose your direct, your direction's chosen by the people that are in the team in the sense that, yeah, if Michael was faster and was young and was the prospect, you show all the respect you can to the drivers you have, but you follow the, you follow the main lead. You can't help it. Um, so I think Nelson knew that even though he'd had a good relationship with the team, that his, his time was over. So, and um, I think Nelson had vast experience. So I think probably, I can't remember the details, but I imagine that 
that last part of that season, Nelson probably pulled a few, few, you know, pulled one over Michael a few times from his experience. But I think he could see on sheer performance he was going to be in trouble. Ross, I guess, is, is there a case of what goes around comes around? Because fast forward to 2012, Mercedes, you had the opportunity to get hold of Lewis Hamilton and, and Michael was in the Nelson PK role in a way, I suppose. Um, you could make that comparison. I think probably I would say that um, that Michael was kept very much in that loop of what was going on. Um, I think the, the thing that you know, was explained to Michael, and I know I explained to Michael, was that Lewis was coming to the end of his contract and there was a window that he was going to be available in. And if he became available, then Mercedes would, would try and go for him because um, he was the future and Michael was coming to the end of his career. So and Michael understood that and respected that. And as long as it was done openly and in a straightforward manner, he, he dealt with it. So, um, yeah, I think probably in that instance, I'd like to think that Michael was kept very much more involved and in the loop than probably with Nelson, who had nothing to do or mm. was uh, didn't have much say in what was going on. Um, uh, and I think, I think um, from memory, Flavio tried to keep Nelson, but it was clear Nelson was, uh, was not going to hang around when Michael turned up. Mm, mm. Now, you worked directly with Michael for 21 years, 1991 to 2012. When was he at his peak? Um... Yeah, I think those those Ferrari years uh, in the you know, early two thousands. Um, you know, we were we were fairly dominant, but he was winning races sometimes he shouldn't have won, and he just had a majesty about him that in that period that um, you know was impressive to watch, and uh, you know his speed, his consistency, his work ethic with the team. Um, you know, that, that was a pretty special period. Um, but, you know, when you talk about a peak, you're talking about a guy who was at the pinnacle for, for most of that time. Um, you know, you, you're, you're comparing uh, extremely high level of performance in all the years. Um, you know, 94, he was, when he won the first championship, he was incredible. You know, we had a, we had a very good car. Um, but he was just exceptional in, in 94. I think, you know, the, it's difficult to define a peak because he was, uh, he flatlined in a sense, but flatlined at a level that was so high that uh, it's difficult to pick out the... Um, I think that one of the things that um, impressed me with probably Michael's career was was 2000 and... Uh, let me get this right. I'm bad on years. 2005, 2006, which were the, the um, where did he finish in so, five? Well, in 2005 he was third. Yeah, and six, and six he, was, he was second. Yeah, well, those are the years when we got done by the tire decision. So, we developed a car which was uh, with Bridgestone, which was um, small fuel tank, multi-stop, uh, nimble on our feet, lots of pit stops. Uh, had that all off to a T. And, um, of course, that was part of the sort of dominating package. And then at the end of 2004, um, the FIA and Bernie decided to introduce a rule where you had to race on one set of tyres the whole whole race, um, which completely screwed the philosophy of, of the Ferrari at the time and completely screwed the philosophy of Bridgestone tyres, which were... You know, high grip, high degradation, but uh, fantastic performance. And the um, you know the properties of a Michelin were were much better. So we went from you know dominating and winning championships to suddenly getting lapped by cars that you know we wouldn't have seen the year before. And I think Michael's resolve and the way he kept his head down in that period was was a tribute to him. He didn't throw the toys out the pram. He um, kept his head down, worked hard, and we almost won it in 2006. Um, yeah, there was a couple of instances near the end of the season that lost us a championship, but we were certainly 
contenders from from a position when these rules changed to to being pretty you know, it was embarrassing when we started because we just didn't have a tire that would last the whole race so we were having to cruise around to make the best of it and you couldn't you couldn't wear the tires out and change you had to uh, unless the tire punctured or failed you were not supposed to change change tires it was a odd rule really but just done purely to screw ferrari did he dwell on disappointments not really i think like um you know my family knew when not to talk to me when i came home after a race if it had gone badly and i think we all everyone who's involved in formula one feels that but you know we'd have a bad race by about the tuesday or wednesday we'd be on the phone talking about it and working out what we were going to do um Sometimes it would be something which, you know, you dealt with on a Monday morning. Sometimes it's something you had to just cool down for a while, depending on what the issue was. But no, he was always uh, he was always as constructive as you could be about resolving issues and fixing them and moving on. And um, one of his great strengths was he always dealt with those issues behind closed doors. He very rarely, I can't recall ever him really complaining outside of the, the team. You know, he might he might get upset about something or other that people saw, but he never went to the media and used the media to complain about something the team was doing or something he was unhappy about. He was always very uh, defensive and supportive of his team because uh, that's the way he felt. Um, could get pretty feisty behind closed doors, but that was how it should have been. Did he have direction from someone like you or did that all come naturally to him to keep everything behind closed doors? I think we all learned together. I mean, one of the reasons um, I think our friendship grew is that we were both, you know, our careers in Formula One were sort of maturing and accelerating about the same time. I mean, I'd been in Formula One for you know, 10, 15 years, maybe longer. Um, by the time I, I got to work with Michael. But I, you know, that level of responsibility I had at Benetton was you know, the biggest team I'd been in and the highest level of responsibility I'd been in. So you know, I was learning as I went along, and um, so was he. So um, you know, he's, you know, he's 14 years younger than me, but um, we were both on this path of, of trying to achieve success in... Formal one, I think we were both learning from each other. Uh, I had a bit more experience, um, but uh, you know, I'd not been that close to the responsibilities I had then um, before. So, yeah, you know, the level of responsibility I had at um, Benetton for the size of team I had at Benetton was a new thing for me, and um, so that that uh, we were both on a you know learning curve in different ways and um, I think both supported each other and both trusted each other which was uh, another key element. Well I was going to say what was the glue that kept you two in particular together for such a long period of time? I think um, I think after a while we just learned to read each other when when to talk when not to talk when to push when to hold back um, and like any any relationship that evolves and develops and matures, you know the right time to encourage and the right time to criticize and the right time to hold back. And um, that was something which developed with Michael. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I ne I had a principle, for instance, of never really well. I don't recall ever telling him how to drive a car. I'd make the information available that he could draw conclusions. Um, but I had no idea how to drive a racing car. I could see from the data analysis and various other things where it was working, where it wasn't working. But you know, I had no experience of going into a corner at the at the speeds that those guys were doing. And 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 Michael often, you know, you could see comparing him to other drivers, he would have more of a a uh, tendency to go into a corner and see what was there and cope with it when he found it. Uh, uh, so his, Is that what made him so good in the wet? Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, the, just the sheer belief in his own ability that whatever was going to happen, 
I mean, it has boundaries, of course. You, know, you can't just go charging into a corner at a ridiculous speed and hope you're going to catch it up. But he would, um, he would just have that extra degree of faith that the, his ability was going to carry him through. And um, I don't really know how you describe it, but that's, that was always my feeling with him, that um, you know, his corner entry speed was always higher, always had a bit more confidence. Uh, and in fact, helping him understand the ways of getting the best time out of the car was was uh, an important thing. And Michael always had very close relationships with his engineers. He started with Pat Simmons at Benetton, uh, Andreas Stella, a um, couple of different guys at uh, at Ferrari. Um, he always had a very intimate relationship with his engineers because he spent so much time with them. And those were the guys who would actually have more affinity and more feel for what the car was doing and describe it to him and discuss it with him. And um, you know, they were the two. There was generally a three-person team. There'd be Michael, a race engineer, what we call the vehicleisti, And he was the vehicleisti. I remember Andrea Stella used to do that for Michael and he would do all the data analysis. So the three of them would be quite a strong entity and uh, working out how to get the best out of the car, what the best way of driving it was, what needed to change, et cetera, et cetera. And that commitment, that devotion to that process was one of the other strengths that Michael had. You talk about devotion. So his work ethic, was that unlike any other driver you experienced? Yes. Yeah, I think um, I've worked with some pretty professional drivers. And I think, you know, if you take someone like Martin Brundle, Martin was extremely committed. And I don't think you would say that Martin worked any less hard than Michael. Um, but there were a lot of other drivers who who definitely didn't didn't get it. Um, you know. Are you going to mention any names? <laughs> <laughs> well, Johnny, Johnny, bless his cotton socks, was... You know, I remember the first time I went up into a debrief with Johnny and he was playing Nintendo or something on a little little machine. And it was his way of relaxing. I kind of understood that, but I was a bit shocked. Because you know, I expected to go up there and see him deep in, deep in discussion with his engineer, and I went up to the debrief bus, and Johnny was playing his Nintendo, and uh, that was his way of of kind of I don't know coming down or dealing with it, um, and uh, that wasn't what I was used to because you know I'd go up to the bus and I'd see Michael in the huddle with his couple of guys working out what what had happened, what was doing. It'd be something he'd be puzzled by or something he wanted to work on. Um, we had to get yeah, there's one or two other guys I had to get into that that approach that that uh, philosophy that was needed you see and it did change because you, you, know, you take a guy like Eddie Irvine Eddie was very you know relaxed to his approach but when he saw what Michael was doing and what he had to, you know Eddie changed and became much more professional in the sort of uh, you know shadow of Michael or the mirror, mirroring of Michael in that uh, you, know, you look at this guy and you see what he's putting into it. You think, well, if I'm going to get any, you know, close to him, I've got to start knuckling down. Now, you've already said that, you know, you had a great job at Benetton. You were the top technical guy. Was it inevitable that you were going to follow Schumacher to Ferrari or were you tempted to stay put? Um, initially, I was definitely going to stay put. I had no intent to go to Ferrari. In fact, probably that that was one of the most difficult periods of mine and Michael's relationship because Michael had um, had a little bit of behind-the-scenes fallout with the senior management at Benetton over his contract, uh, which he told me about, and he was unhappy about one or two things that had happened. And then he came to see me uh, during the the '95 season and said, um, "I'm." Uh, I'm moving. And uh, at that stage, there was a very brief discussion about whether I would go with him or not. But I think he, I didn't, I didn't want to at that stage. And I think, well, there was no room for me. I mean, Michael was going to a Ferrari team with John Barnard. And, you know, they were very committed to the, you know, the John Barnard approach and route. And they'd set John up in the new uh, facility and so on and so forth. So I don't think any of our thoughts were for me to do that as well. 
Did you feel let down by Michael? Because he just won two world championships on the bounce for you guys. Probably would have won in '96 had he stayed. Maybe. Yeah, he would have. I think he would have won in '96. We had we had a good car in '96. And were you surprised uh, that he went? I was a bit, and I say that's probably one of the most difficult times of of our relationship because um, he'd uh, he'd made that move, and I was very committed and devoted to Bennett and the people that were there. I was in the middle of a say a crisis at Benetton but I, I felt I knew where Bennett what Benetton had to do next to really become to get on to another level and Formula One is, is a pretty engineering led organisation and you know, I'd gone to Benetton you know, in the position I had I had a senior position but I wasn't in charge uh, totally in charge I was in charge of some of it but not all of it and I had a vision for where the team could go in the future. And that vision seemed to be shared by, by Flavio and the Benison family. Um, but when it actually came down to making the changes that were needed, they wouldn't back me. They said they, they were going to, and then it didn't happen. And um, so during the year, I became a bit disillusioned because the promises had been made to me as part of the right, we're going to revitalize this team. Okay, we're losing Michael, but we're going to take the team to another level. And it involved uh, investment, involved restructuring of the company, involved various things. Just wasn't happening. And I was getting, um, I was getting blanked whenever I raised the topic that we were supposed to be doing this. And then about the middle of the year, um, I think Michael had discovered a different situation at Ferrari than they anticipated on the engineering side and wanted to to introduce what we had at Benetton but that wasn't John's way of doing things Um, and so about the middle of the year I got a call saying would you like to have a chat Willie Weber called me and said uh, Michael's asked me to call you Jean Todd's asked me to call you would you sit down with Jean and just discuss things. And I knew Jean from sports car days because Jean ran the Peugeot team, so we knew each other quite well. And I was just at the right point of getting frustrated with Benetton having been made promises over the winter that were not happening. So I went along and I was tempted and we started working on a deal. And I think about September time, everything was in place and I told Benetton that I was leaving. They clearly were not... Were not uh, didn't see things as I saw them. Of course, there was a bit of a reaction and a panic, and it got awkward for a, a few weeks, but then eventually they, they recognized that there was no point in uh, in standing in my way, and they released me, and I went to Ferrari. Um, so that's how it, how it happened. So when you were at Ferrari, I mean, well, it's Michael had already had the disappointment of 96. He won a few races, but... 96, 97, 98, 99. Four missed years as far as you guys were concerned. How did you all deal with the disappointment of that? And what, what was the pressure like? Because Ferrari hadn't won a championship since 79 with Schecter. Um, they hadn't. The only thing I'd say is I think we were second. Uh, first to the losers? Or how did you view Yeah, first finish- to the losers, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, how did but, you view finishing second? Was it even more frustrating? Oh, it was gut-wrenching, but yeah. you know, on, on reflection, it probably bonded the team more strongly together than, than might have been. I'm not saying we wouldn't have welcomed winning those championships, but I think it, it pulled the team closer together. I mean, we, you know, we lost championships literally at the last race of those, those three years. Um, 97, 98, 99. 96, obviously, I wasn't that involved. Um, but 97, we modified John's car and had a run at it. 98, um, we got to, yeah, we got very close. 99, Michael broke his leg uh, when he would have won the championship quite easily. I mean, you know, Eddie almost won it. And Michael was, was on the road to dominating that one until the accident. So... Can I ask you a question about Eddie? Had he won that championship in 99, um, how would that have gone down within Ferrari? Probably mixed, if I'm honest, because there was a feeling that you know, Michael was the one who would have deserved it quite clearly. But we would have taken it. And, and I think there was, 
yeah, big effort made to try and get Eddie over the line on that. And um, yeah, he got a bit wobbly at the end, I think, when the pressure really came on. He struggled to handle it because, um, you know, we had, uh, we had a good car that year. We were, we were backing him every way we could. I mean, Mika Sala gave up a race win to Eddie. Uh, Michael gave up a race win to Eddie when he came back. So there was every opportunity for Eddie to make it. But I think deep down, everyone thought Michael was the one who deserved it. But we wouldn't have said no because you never do. Mm. We won the Constructors that year which was, uh, um, you know, for teams is an important thing, but felt a little bit of a consolation prize. So can then, you just describe what it, the sense of relief that you had at the end of 2000 when finally it all came together? Yeah, I think that's why the, you know, you can look back on it now uh, with a sort of um, rose-tinted spectacles and say how great 2000 was because we were so painful, it was so painful in, in the three previous years, you know, it was, it was stunning for us to win it in 2000. And it was a strong championship. I mean, you know, we had to fight incredibly hard in 2000 to win it. It wasn't a cruise, that's for sure. And, um, yeah, I think it was Japan, wasn't it, that we, we sealed it. And I remember we were, there was a lot of race strategy involved. We were racing with Mika. And uh, we, yeah, you never... The, the both enjoyable and stressful thing in that period was on the pit wall, you were very involved in the race. You know, you you could make or break the race very easily. You needed the driver to uh, to deliver for sure, and that was what, one of the things Michael was great at. But you could screw the race if you got it wrong. And so, you know, you're mapping out what you thought, and I think we made some good strategic decisions in that race. And uh, I remember the last pit stop where... You know, Michael uh, came out in front of Mika, and um, you know there was we had to get it to the end, but there was a fair bit of elation when we did that. And I remember poor old Mika asking what the hell had happened because he thought he he was on top of it. Um, I think we just kept our powder dry until we had a window of opportunity, and as always, Michael Michael nailed it at the crucial time, and that was it. That's a good point as well, isn't it? Because how much easier was your life on the pit wall having Michael in the car as opposed to another driver? I, I point at, I think, Hungary 98 as one example where you had him make up, I think, 25 seconds in 19 laps yeah, and put him on a three-stop and you beat both of the McLarens. Could you have done that kind of thing with any other driver? There, there will be drivers who could do that, but... Uh... Michael was exceptional because he he had the ability to do that. He enjoyed doing it. He uh, nothing turned him on more than than doing it. Uh, and um, he understood it all. You know, he would spend the time with us, with the models, with the strategy. He'd spend quite a lot of time with me, and as the strategy became more involving the people that were helping put the strategy together. He would spend a lot of time with them, understanding every nuance of what was going to happen and how it might happen and what his uh, his key areas of the race would be. And, you know, it was, it was a chess game <coughs> in that, you know, there were periods where you didn't make the strongest moves. You were You were just putting yourself in the right place to make the strong moves when, when the opportunity came. So, and he understood all of that. So he, um, we'd still get, you know, done sometimes to still get shocks. You know, he would still, he would be the one asking me what the hell had happened. Uh, but it was a very, uh, thrilling part of the racing in those, those periods. I mean, now the strategy is almost autonomous, you know, it's, uh, because we haven't got the refueling and you haven't got the fuel weights taken into consideration, then there's an undercut or something like But, you know, going, being faster at the end of a stint with no fuel and old tyres was quite feasible compared to being out there on high fuel with new tyres. You know, that was the, the crucial thing. Whereas now, unless, you know, depending on the state of the tyres, it's pretty rare that you'll, um, you'll be faster at the end of a stint. Uh, 
depending on tyres, but very rare you'd be faster at the end of a stint than you will be at the beginning of the next one because you've got the same fuel weight. So it's a different scenario. Now, talk to me about the what I call the juggernaut years, when you guys were unstoppable, so 2000 through to 2004. Um, did you guys ever, this might seem an odd question, but did you ever feel guilty about the extent of your dominance? No, and I think because we we paid the price for those particularly those three years. I mean, we'd all been in business quite a long time. Um, and those three years of, of agony at the last race, um, we didn't have any uh, any issues uh, about the... And I think 2004 was pretty dominant, but uh, they were all generally... If you look at the... Yeah, it wasn't like now where the top three teams are lapping everyone else and sort of disappearing. We didn't do that. We always seemed to have someone nibbling at our heels, keeping us as honest as we needed to be. And we, you know, we had some uh, quite hard-fought championships some of those years. So, but it was a good. It was a well-oiled machine. Um, you know, Rory was doing a fantastic job designing the cars, and you know because the way we worked, almost as soon as he got one done, I'd get him off on the next one and leave, leave the race team to develop the car and the race team to, to run the car. And um, you know, we'd get the car, we'd, the beginning of the year, we'd get the car running, get it settled, work it out. There'd be some a development program agreed and then Rory would start to be thinking about the next car. And when you get in that motion, you get in that rhythm, then it, it's very strong. And um, great team mechanics led by Nigel Stepney was doing a fantastic job. Uh, Stefano running a team was doing, you know, every every element of a team was working well and very united and very, uh, yeah, a very homogenous team. Is that, is that the word? Very together and uh, very together group. Did you sense that Michael's hunger dimmed at any point? In the, when by the time he'd knocked up seven world championships and ninety-one victories, was there? Did you feel him? ease off at all or was the hunger there like it was his first race win I mean I never I never and I suppose I was I'm as guilty as this as he was in a way in that you know I left Ferrari after 10 years and I decided that after 10 years was a great time every year had been fabulous and I never never regretted a single year but almost wanted it to stay that way. And I decided 10 years was a nice round number. Now, how illogical is that to an engineer? I mean, you know, you, you're going to stop work at Ferrari after 10 years because it's a nice round number. Uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, it just felt like I was having, and I had a great time and I was nervous of it. I had to take a step down at some stage. We'd had a couple of tough years, but we'd come out of it. We'd got on top of it, and in fact, the team won the championship in uh, 2007. So, with the car that was designed while I was still there, and the program that was uh, only just, but they did. And and 2006, we almost won it again. So I was pretty pleased with where the team was. And Michael just said to me that he was tired. He he, you know, he was hankering after being able to do other things that he couldn't do with the level of commitment and devotion that he needed to give Formula 1. He was never a guy who was going to do a half-hearted job. So he he um, he knew the levels of commitment that he would want to give it, give to the project. He just decided he didn't want to make that commitment anymore. He was tired and he wanted to have some time to himself. And that was... That was as much of an explanation as he gave me for stopping. So what changed? Fast forward to 2010, when you, he came back with you at Mercedes. Um, well, I think he'd, he'd rested. <laughs> okay. I think he'd had... He'd scratched a few itches. Yeah, he'd had those years of sort of doing the various things he wanted Fallen to do. Fallen off a few motorbikes. Didn't there he? was that as yeah. well, yeah. yeah. Which, uh, he'd done the things that he wanted to do. And, and I... I understand that because I've kind of done the same. I've had three years of retirement before coming back to this role, and you know, in a way, you miss the you miss the structure and and the rhythm of the of the job, the life, the challenges. Um, 
you know, I had a pretty busy three years of retirement doing various things. In fact, Jean reckons she saw less of me when I was retired than when I was working, but but at a different pace. And that that's the thing I discovered, that retirement, everything I did at my own pace. This business drives you at a different speed, and so it can be addictive. It can be very appealing. And I think he found the same, that he'd had you know, his three years or whatever, four years of, of just running his own life at whatever pace he wanted to. And you know, he missed perhaps the discipline and the, the pace of, uh, of Formula One. Who made the first move for 2010? Well, what, what happened, if you remember, because of um, Felipe's accident, Michael tried to get back in the car and that kind of alerted me to the fact that he was starting to get withdrawal symptoms. Um, he'd had his bike accident and, and yeah, he'd hurt his neck quite badly, much more than people probably appreciated um, as he kept it quite quiet. And, uh, and he couldn't drive, the, you know, eventually he had to admit he couldn't drive the car when they tried to get him in the Ferrari. Um, his neck was just giving him too much grief. So he, uh, but it showed to me that he was, he was keen. He was, uh, he certainly wasn't crossing it off. And when, quite frankly, we were caught off balance by Jensen deciding to leave, I rang him up and said, do you fancy a beer? And he said, I know what you want to ask. Let's have one. He really, um, he knew why you were making that call. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he, he kept his finger on the pulse. And uh, so it was no shock to him. And in fact, we, we agreed to try and find a way forward very quickly. And, and, um, and Mercedes were very keen to have him in the car, of course. Norbert was very keen to, to get him in the car. So then it was just a question of working out a deal that everybody could live with. So. It came together fairly quickly. Was Willy Weber still involved at that point, or was Michael doing most of the deals? No, himself? Michael had, had uh, moved on since then. So, working with Sabine came. Yeah, yeah, and really looking after himself by that stage. I mean, I don't think he needed Willy in the years he was retired, so he didn't. He didn't reconnect. From my recollection, I think that was the case. Had he, had he learned quite a lot of Willy, in terms of? <laughs> doing a deal, being demanding. I seem it to... wasn't a difficult deal, to be honest. Right. No, it was a, it was a very straightforward um, arrangement. What about Michael, the driver then? Was he the same? Could you see immediately he was the same driver that he'd been in 2006? Um, many ways. Um, I think the difference was that we no longer had a dominant car. I mean, you know, in, in those periods of Ferrari, we always had a strong car or the strongest car. And the reality was we didn't have it in 2010. Um, the team had been in survival mode because we simply didn't know where we were going and we, we, couldn't, we couldn't commit the budget to putting in a strong development program for 2010 because we were basically, you know, the, we were keeping a close eye on every expenditure because we, we, thought we may have to survive another year with no major. Uh, and it was a sign of the times at that period that we won the world championship, but we still didn't have a major sponsor. Um, and, uh, you know, we were the fairy story of that year, but we still didn't have a major sponsor. You know, it was a pretty tough economic environment at that stage. So we went into 2010 with you know, gently warmed up version of what we had in 2009 rather than making the level of progress. And of course, you know, new regulations in nine, other teams got on top of them quick, more quickly than we did. So in 2010, we were pretty average. Mm. How much of a frustration was that for all of you, having to sort of reset your goals, I suppose? It was. And um, but what was interesting that period, and in fact... I remember Andrew Shovlin talking to me you know, after they won the first one or two of their world championships again, how much he felt that Michael had contributed to that that success in that um, you know, the, Michael had helped to instill and, and 
reinforce the principles of of how to do things and you know in that period because i I'd, I'd worked with michael i knew what he was like i knew the standards he maintained and i knew the the levels he worked to those guys hadn't and so michael came in i mean it's a funny story i mean jock clear who was Villeneuve's engineer when Michael and Villeneuve came together, almost hated Michael with a passion, yet became one of Michael's closest friends when Michael came to the team and worked with him. Um, and Michael's work ethic and discipline and application just won everyone over, and it, it raised the standard of the team in knowing what they could or should be doing. I mean, I, I, I think I had an impact, but all Michael had just as much or even more impact on the team when he came and worked there. So they, uh, yeah. How interesting. Uh, so yeah, these... Andrew Shovlin yeah. said to me, I, you know, especially when they won their first world championship and I was talking to him about it. And he said, you know, this one, you know, it's got, Michael had an awful lot to do with us winning this championship. So Now, Ross, you, you touched on Hareth 97 there, talking about Jock Riddles. There were a few blemishes, and Adelaide 94 with Damon Hill. Hiccups. Is that what we... <laughs> <laughs> but did he... <laughs> and then it was Monaco 2006 in qualifying as well when he yeah. parked the car. How did Michael explain those, those three moments in particular to you? Well, the Villeneuve incident was fascinating because when he came back to the pits, he was convinced Villeneuve was a, was a villain. And, uh, and it was Villeneuve had done wronged him yeah so he came back to the pit screaming we had to get Villeneuve disqualified he'd he'd driven into him he'd um and then we showed it to him on the video and he was shocked genuinely shocked I mean in his own mind Villeneuve had hit him he hadn't hit Villeneuve and um you know it it uh I don't know how you describe it it was a kind of um a reaction he had that, you know, there was so much pressure. This was a championship that he could win. And that was a race where he'd become particularly frustrated because I can't criticize him because, I, you know, we probably invented the game. But but Frenson had been messing about with Michael for a lot of the race uh, as, a, as a sort of foil of Williams and was screwing Michael's race up. Um, and Michael was quicker, I think, than, than Villeneuve. And... Um, yeah, there was a lot of complexity in that race that was going on. And um, it all kind of surfaced in this blip, this aberration that he had. And as I say, he came back to the pit screaming blue murder about Villeneuve and the way he'd driven. And it wasn't until he looked at it that he went very quiet and realized that it hadn't, you know, what, what we'd seen was not what he perceived in the cockpit that happened. I think Monaco was a stupid move. I don't really understand Monaco because it... My only, my only frustration with Monaco is we knew we probably wouldn't be on pole, but we had such a fast car and we had, we had a great strategy we'd sort of worked out of what we were going to do that we would have won the race. Um, and where I kicked myself is I should have made that even clearer to him that there was not the pressure on pole position that there might have been. And and so I'm not... He He did something he shouldn't have done. And there was no doubt about it. And I don't think he ever had an excuse for it. Um, so, but, you know, in a career spanning how many years? 20, 20 odd years? 306 races. 306 races. You've mentioned three incidents. Yeah. He's pretty tough the rest of the time, don't get me wrong. But, you know, three instances, you know, that's a 1% aberration rate when you're in the spotlight every race. So uh, there you go. How tough was it for him, do you think, after Monaco in particular? Because his peers, the other drivers, came down pretty hard on him, didn't they? I remember Alonso was very outspoken. Uh, Weber too, I think, Mark Weber. Um, I think he had, he had various people that he respected in various people he didn't, didn't pay much attention to. Um, that was all part of the defence mechanism of being a sort of frontline Formula 1 driver. So there were definitely people... I mean, I remember Mika Hakkinen, he always had a lot of time for you. Huge respect for him. Um, 
I think when you're out on the circuit, we don't really appreciate it. But when you're out on the circuit and you're seeing what people do and you're seeing the little moves they make and the little twitches they make and the way they drive and the ability, you know, you'd sometimes hear, you know, any driver would come in and say, you know, so-and-so is a tosser because I've watched him out on the circuit and he hasn't taken that corner twice to say in two laps. And, you know, they'd have, they'd have opinions of each other. And they'd have opinions of, of of who would be a good driver, you know, who they would respected and who they admired. So I think a lot depended on, on who it was and saying what. I think when Mika had things to say about Michael, he always said them to Michael privately. And I think that had a, quite an impact on Michael when, when it happened. Um, and that was, you know, Mika was both, uh, very honourable in a sense, but also very smart in the way he did things. Because if he had a he had something to say to Michael, he'd go and tell him privately, and that had Mike, you know, Michael respected him, and it uh, had much bigger impact than someone you know, drawing away in the press about it. So it must have had some impact on him, but I don't think I never got the impression that it was. Uh, he just saw that as part of the battle. You don't think he was an inherently dirty driver. Well, it depends what you mean by dirty. Only the reason I'm thinking, <laughs> the reason I'm thinking of that is Mika Spa 2000. He eventually got past using uh, mm. was it Zonta Ricardo Zonta wasn't yeah. it? And he, but but the lap before Michael had had him on the grass, I think going up to Lake Horn. But yeah, Michael took no prisoners. Yeah, um, but you know he rarely compared. He com- rarely complained about anyone else either. I mean, you know, I just mentioned the Villeneuve thing, but that was, I say, more of an aberration. But he rarely, you know, he rarely whinged or moaned about someone else being tough on him. If someone else had, he didn't get him on the radio that often saying, oh, so-and-so has done this, or he moved on the braking, or he did that, he shouldn't be doing. You know, it was kind of live by the sword, die by the sword type of thing. That, that you know, I'm going to, everyone will know if they want to get past me, they're going to have to do a special job. Um, and I think that's all part of the, sort of vernacular of being a racing driver, certainly a top-line racing driver. So, Was your relationship with him strictly professional? Did you guys hang out away from the racetrack? Were, you, uh, were, not the, huge, were the families... Not a huge amount. Um, special occasions. You know, my birthdays, his birthdays, um, anniversaries. You know, I always... Uh, we as a family always like to have... Um, uh, celebrate special occasions so I remember my 40th which was 94 he uh, he came to my party in the UK wedding anniversaries he loved uh, we went to some of his parties and he loved to they were always fancy dress he loved dressing up um, <laughs> so they were always fairly glamorous fancy dress parties and um, he'd always be in a pretty flamboyant uh, outfit so, um, and they were, they were lively parties, I must say. Uh, Did you sense so. he was the same guy? Was he a different guy away from the racetrack, away from the pressure of he was, um, Formula 1? He was a very well-balanced guy away from the racetrack. I mean, he never lauded the I'm Michael Schumacher, you know, do you know who I am? That t- I never ever saw that in him. Um, he liked to have a bit of protection because obviously he, he loved America because really no one knew him there. And he liked to spend time in America because that, that gave him the privacy and freedom that he, he uh, hankered over. Because you, know, you saw him in, the, in Europe or in any of the places where he was recognized and he couldn't move. Um, so, you know, there was that, that was an element of his... Uh, but, you know, you, you, I've gone meet him at the house and... Corinna would be there, the dogs would be there, the kids would be there, and you know, he'd lounge around the pool for half a day. Or, you know, it was all very relaxed. He never, he never lauded it. Um, he had good, nice standards, you know, regards to the family and regards to the way he led his life. So, actually, just before we talk about legacy, there's one other thing. Was he superstitious? Do you remember when he came to Mercedes and there was the whole thing about changing his race number? 
He did have... He, Wasn't it? He was meant know, to be he, four and Rosberg was three, but he wanted odd numbers or something. He was always superstitious about odd numbers. His chassis numbers had to be odd numbers. And we used to change the chassis plates around because it was never the most convenient thing to give him a specific chassis. So <laughs> the chassis plates <laughs> were, were, were movable for that reason. He knew you were doing that, did he? Probably, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't matter to him as long as the chassis was called number three or called number seven or whatever it was. Um... So he, he had a thing about odd numbers. Um, that was mm. that was a thing I really recall. That, mm. that that was a bit of a thing for him. Mm. But, uh, so the legacy of Michael Schumacher, he's 50 years young. How, how would you describe his legacy? I think he set, he set just completely new standards in Formula 1. New standards in terms of fitness, preparation, the level of commitment that, that drivers needed to give. Um, you know, just take a small example, his fitness. He just raised the bar so, so much in that respect. And it's in, interesting. I know you know, difficult to compare the cars physically now with you know, the physical effort driver car now compared to what they used to be. But he would finish at race and he wouldn't be sweating and he would be leaping around the rostrum. And you looked at the other two drivers on the rostrum and they'd be fatigued barely able to lift the trophy. And they kind of looked at this guy and thought, this is, uh, this is supernatural. Uh, and he raised that standard. And it's now normal. I mean, if you look at all the young guys, look at any driver in Formula 1, their levels of fitness are impressive. And he was, to my mind, probably the first one who, who attained those levels of fitness. More so, more so than Senna? Yeah, yeah. I, I think Erdogan was a huge, you know, was... Um, very special driver but you know i saw him fatigued uh, i never saw michael tired can't remember an occasion when he finished a race and he sort of struggled to get out of the car but i saw that with Eton. um so even those races where he did you know 19 qualifying laps or whatever he still bounced out of the car and yeah all the time i'd be on the radio to him be like you and i having this conversation there was no impression of breathlessness or fatigue he would be on top of it and I think that was one of the things that was his strength he had he wasn't fatigued he wasn't stressed so he could be thinking about things there were so many examples he was um, he was winning a race somewhere and he came on the radio and said uh, I've just done the fastest lap you haven't shown me on the board because you know it's pit board and radio much more so in those days we said no, you haven't. He said yes, I have. I've just seen it on the on the uh, grand on the TV by corner. And we thought, what's he going on about? And then we realised it was his brother, and it had Schumacher fastest lap, and he'd caught it as he was driving past Schumacher fastest lap, uh, and he'd um, but he hadn't rec he hadn't quite seen it. it was R Schumacher, not M Schumacher, and uh, we said no, no, no. Your brother, but in the, you know, there he was leading a Grand Prix, just having to sort of. So he just had this spare capacity that that not many other drivers had, and most other drivers, you know, you would they'd be breathless, they'd be having to give everything they had to to do the job. He just seemed to have uh, extra spare capacity beyond what he was doing in the car. Was he the most complete driver that you ever worked with? For me, yes. Yeah, I mean, I didn't work with it and I didn't work with Elaine Prost or some of those other guys but for me he uh, <clears throat> he was he was um, uh, yeah I think the you know drivers are different I mean I've been fascinated by Lewis and the approach he's taken I mean he's doing a tremendous job amazing job but almost a different approach to Michael I mean Michael would put in all the commitment and then go away quietly with the family and and sort of chill out and Lewis likes to I wouldn't say party because that's not the right description but he likes to do different things that keep him in the pro high profile and and uh, in the limelight um, Michael was the opposite he wanted to get away from all of that so different strokes for different folks and um, but I have to say you know didn't work with Lewis that long for me, the most complete driver was, was Michael. And I think it's because he was setting new standards. 
in his period. As I say, someone like Lewis, their level of preparation, their level of commitment, etc. They saw the Michael Schumacher era. They, they saw what was needed and they, they found this new reference point that didn't exist before. Well, Ross, I think that's a lovely place to end it. Thank you very mm. much. Great to talk about Michael. Yeah, yeah, no, very fond memories. Thank you Cheers. very much. So many great insights into the champ there. Michael's unbelievable work ethic is something that shines through, as well as his commitment to winning. Young drivers take note. It goes without saying that he raised the bar in terms of what's expected of a racing driver, and that's quite some legacy. Thank you, Ross, for being so open. That was a fascinating chat. And we're not done with commemorating Michael Schumacher's 50th birthday just yet, because we have another Schumacher exclusive next week with another very special guest. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And to ensure you don't, make sure you've subscribed to Be On The Grid. And we'd love to know your thoughts on what Ross Braun had to say. So please get in touch using the hashtag F1BeOnTheGrid or you can tweet me at TomClarksonF1. And don't forget, you can find lots more Schumacher content all week on FormulaOne.com and F1's social channels. There are videos, articles and much, much more. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>